Okay, guys, welcome back to Behind the Knife's Ab Site review series. I hope studying is going well um, and you guys are prepared to dominate the Ab Site. Uh, once again, uh, please check out the Behind the Knife podcast companion available on Amazon. Just either search for Ab Site or search for Behind the Knife and you'll see it. Um, uh, follow us on Facebook. Check us out on Twitter. Uh, we have a YouTube channel. Uh, it really helps if you guys you know, subscribe to the things that we're putting out and leave us uh, reviews. Let us know what you like, what we don't like, what you don't like, uh, what we can do better. Okay, let's get started. We'll start with some high-yield anatomy. So, John, what's the arterial blood supply to the adrenal gland? So working from uh, top to bottom, uh, so if the superior part of the adrenal, you get branches off the inferior phrenic. You also get branches directly off the aorta. And more inferiorly, it will get branches off the renal arteries. Yeah, so it's got a couple different arterial uh, feeds into it. The, the more interesting, the more tested thing, Wu, is however, the adrenal uh, venous drainage. It's a little different on the left and on the right. Isn't that right? Yeah, that's correct. So on the right side, the vein is shorter and drains directly into the IVC. And on the left, the vein is longer and drains into the left renal vein. So, John, the, the adrenal gland is broken up in two anatomic functional units, the adrenal cortex and the adrenal medulla. Now, the adrenal cortex is broken up to three different zones that also secrete a particular hormone. What are those three zones and what hormone do they secrete? So, I think about this uh, from the medical school acronym, GFR or salt, and, or salt sugar sex. So, the first one is zona glomerulosa, uh, which secretes aldosterone. Uh, zona fasciculata, which secretes uh, cortisol, and zona reticularis, which is uh, secretes your androgens. Right, right, right. Salt, sugar, sex, the deeper you go, the sweeter it gets, is, is a mnemonic I, uh, I remember from medical school. Okay, what about the adrenal medulla? Uh, what is the origin of that, and what does it produce? So the medulla comes from neurocrest origin, and it produces catecholamines, so your epinephrine and norepinephrine. So uh, moving on to a little bit of physiology, John. So the uh, something that often comes up when we talk about the adrenal gland is the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone pathway. Um, walk us through that. The renin-angiotensin-aldosterone pathway, uh, it stems from decreased intravascular volume and decreased sodium concentration uh, in the blood. So this will stim stimulate renin release from the juxtamera apparatus. Then the renin, which is uh, now circulating, stimulates the conversion from angio angiotensinogen uh, to angiotensin 1. The angiotensin 1 is then converted to angiotensin 2 by the angiotensin converting enzyme ACE in the lung. Yeah, so that's a good one. You need to know that. So those are, those are testable things. So renin from the JXA or the juxtaglomerular apparatus. Renin converts angiotensinogen to angiotensin 1. Angiotensin 1. It goes to the lung and where it's converted to angiotensin 2 by the angiotensin-converting enzyme. What are some of the actions of angiotensin 2 after it's produced? So this will cause vasoconstriction and the release of aldosterone from the zona glomerulosa. Yep, so that's where it comes into the adrenal gland. After all that happens, angiotensin 2 um, it responds by vasoconstriction and traveling to the adrenal gland, causing the reduce of aldosterone. And aldosterone then does what, John? It will cause sodium retention uh, and potassium excretion in the renal tubules. Yep. So that's, that's uh, again, these are all feedback mechanisms. This is in response to de decreasing intravascular volume. It's a very important uh, component of the adrenal gland and its, its functional capacity. Uh, another thing is the cortisol pathway, Wu. Uh, walk us through how the adrenal gland fits into all that. So for the cortisol pathway, think back to the hypothalamic pituitary axis. 
So the hypothalamus releases corticotropin-releasing hormone, or CRH, which then in turn stimulates ACTH release from the pituitary gland. And that ACTH stimulates cortisol synthesis and release from the zona fasciculata of the adrenal gland. Right. And so, and then what is, uh, what is the role of cortisol? What does the cortisol do? Yeah. So the end effect of cortisol is to inhibit the release of CRH and ACTH in a negative feedback loop. Uh, and downstream, the cortisol has effects on hepatic gluconeogenesis, glycogen synthesis, protein catabolism, lipolysis of fat. Uh, additionally, cortisol has effects on hyperglycemia, impairing wound healing, uh, leads to collagen loss and bone loss. Yeah, so I know we all became surgeons, so we didn't have to worry about all this confusing physiology, but it's really important to understand the under, underlying mechanism, so uh, that way you can understand the pathology. It makes understanding the, some of the different primary disorders of the adrenal gland easier, which we're going to move into right now. So some adrenal disorders. So John, primary hyperaldosteronism. Um, tell us a little bit about that. What are some just kind of key basic things we need to know? So on the ab site, if you see a patient that they're presenting to you is hypertensive with hypokalemia, this is what you need to be thinking of off the bat. Uh, primary hyperaldosteronism is more common than previously thought. Up to 10% of hypertensive patients now have it. And I was surprised, I was surprised by that. That's pretty common. Up to 10% of hypertensive patients are due to a primary hyperaldosteronism. Good news for us who like to operate because yeah. we'll get to that here in a little bit. Uh, but how do you make the diagnosis? So you first want to measure your serum aldosterone and measure the plasma renin activity. Uh, you can also confirm this with a salt load test, and your aldosterone to renin ratio uh, should be greater than 20 to 1. Right, so that's an important thing you need to know, the aldosterone to renin ratio of 21. And if you go back and you think about your, your pathway, um, that'll make sense. Uh, so after you get your biochemical, your laboratory confirmation, um, what kind of imaging do you want to get? So uh, a directed CT adrenal protocol uh, with thin cuts. Yeah, and that's an important thing as we'll get to here in a minute. These are typically very small. Um, cause, when it's caused by an adenoma, the adenoma is typically very small. Um, so let's say on your CT scan, you see a, you, first off, you have all the things. You have the laboratory confirmation of, of a hyperaldosteronism. Um, and your CT scan shows a unilateral macroadenoma greater than one centimeter. What do you want to do? So these patients would be uh, consented for a laparoscopic adrenalectomy. Okay. And what if you either see something less than a centimeter or you don't really see anything at all? What do you want to do? So then your next steps would be adrenal venous sampling uh, to distinguish unilateral macroanoma versus this bilateral hyperplasia. Yeah. And believe it or not, uh, some texts will actually say you need to do adrenal venous sampling on all patients, even if you see a macroadenoma, because it's possible to have a non-functioning benign adenoma. Uh, and you actually have a contralateral functional microadenoma that's an aldosteronoma. Um, uh, that's in some text. I don't think that most people are practicing that way. Um, so typically I would go with tumors that are greater than one centimeter resect. If they're smaller than that, then you go with the, the selective venous sampling. Uh, what about if you see hyperplasia? So hyperplasia is managed uh, medically. Uh, with uh, sodium restriction, uh, potassium supplementation, as well as spironolactone or eplerinone. Okay, woo. Uh, another common clinical syndrome associated with the adrenal gland. We talked about the renin-aldosteronone pathway and how that can go wrong. And let's talk about the cortisol pathway and how that can go wrong. What's Cushing syndrome? Yeah, so the symptoms of Cushing syndrome include obesity, muscle weakness, fatigue, moon faces, your buffalo hump, uh, striated skin, hirsutism, and osteopenia. 
for Cushing syndrome, think about three different discrete categories. So first you have your ACTH secreting pituitary tumor. Uh, this is the most common comprising 65 to 70% of Cushing syndrome. Second, think of your ectopic ACTH secreting tumor. And these are most commonly uh, small cell carcinoma of the lung. And third, think about cortisol producing adrenal tumors. And this is most commonly in adenoma. Yeah, so exactly. So you, you went through the clinical syndrome there. There can be some different, some different causes. So how do you go about working that up and sorting these out? What's your goals of your evaluation? Yeah, there are a couple goals in the diagnosis of this. So first, you want to determine that a state of increased cortisol production exists. Uh, second, you want to determine whether the state is ACTH-dependent or ACTH-independent. And if it's ACTH-dependent, then it's going to be pituitary or ectopic. And if it's independent, it's going to be an adrenal source. Okay. So how do you go about doing that? What kind of test do you want to run? Yeah. So first, you want to start with a 24-hour urinary-free cortisol collection. And that's going to tell you that the first goal of therapy, like you said, is going to determine whether or not there's a hypercortisol state. So that's that's your way of doing that. The 24-hour urine, not a serum cortisol because it fluctuates without a day. You need a 24-hour urine cortisol for that first goal of therapy, okay? Exactly. So after that, once you have your 24-hour collection that's elevated, you want to move on to a low-dose dexamethasone suppression test. If both these are elevated, the next step is to measure the serum ACTH level. And if the ACTH is suppressed, then you know that it's an adrenal source because the axis is intact, it's in the adrenal. If the ACTH is elevated despite the suppression test, then you want to move on to do a high-dose dexamethasone suppression test. And here, the high-dose dexamethasone will suppress an ACTH produced for most pituitary adenomas. But if it's an ectopic source, such as the lung, the high-dose dexamethasone will not suppress that. Right. So it's just going back to your access. You're doing your, you're confirming your ex- excessive cortisol level with the 24-hour urine test. You're doing your dexamethasone suppression test. If you measure your ACTH and it's suppressed, then like you say, you know your access is intact and your source is from your adrenal gland. If your ACTH is elevated, then you got to sort out where's it coming from. Is it coming from the pituitary? Is it coming from an ectopic source? If you do a high-dose dexamethasone test, that will suppress most pituitary tumors, but it won't suppress if it's coming from the lung. So just, again, you got to understand the access. And once you do that, you understand how you suppress different things. You just got to, it's, it's difficult to just rogue memorization. But if you understand the process, you're going to be able to answer these questions. Um, so, okay, so let's say you do that, woo. And based on all of those tests, you, su- you suspect that your excess cortisol is coming from an adrenal source. What's the next step? The next step would be to get a dedicated abdominal CT scan. Perfect. And it's, you want to make sure it's a um, triple phase adrenal protocol CT to really find those smaller adenomas. Let's say that you, after you run your dexamethasone test, you suspect a pituitary source. What's the next step? The next step then would be a pituitary MRI. Okay. Um, And let's say you suspect an ectopic source. So then you want to get a chest CT. Yep. You're looking for a a lung cancer. And what type of lung cancer produces produces ACTH? Small cell. Small cell lung cancer. Perfect. Okay. So moving on. Another common board scenario that that most of us are unlikely to to encounter in actual clinical practice is congenital adrenal hyperplasia. They really like to ask questions about this. And it's a very complex topic. 
Um, I know at one point I spent a long time trying to memorize the the hormone pathway and how different things get broken down and what's high and what's not high. And then I found a very easy, simple to use mnemonic that's gotten me almost every question right on the board since that time. So it's a little bit hard to describe. So what we're going to do, I'm going to try, but first what we're going to do is I'm going to point you to a very useful two-minute YouTube video called Easy Congenital Adrenal Hyperplasia Mnemonic that's going to get you most of the answers right on the ab sites and the general surgery boards. And we're going to put a link to that in our show notes. So I'm going to try and describe this table to you to help you visualize. So the three most common ones you need to know are 21 hydroxylase deficiency, 17 alpha hydroxylase deficiency, and 11 alpha hydroxylase deficiency. Uh, the key things we're worried about with these syndromes are aldosterone levels and testosterone levels. Uh, if you have an elevated aldosterone level, we know what aldosterone does. Does We know the pathway, so it's going to give us hypertension and hypokalemia. If you have elevated testosterone, it's going to give you virilization. So you think about the numbers, 21, 17, 11. You make two columns. First column is aldosterone. Second column is testosterone. Uh, you think about blood pressure and sex. Your blood pressure comes up before you have sex. Aldosterone and testosterone. Use the numbers, 21 under those columns, 21. Every time you see the number one, it's an up arrow. Think of it as an up arrow. That's going to tell you what's elevated. So with 21 hydroxylase, aldosterone is going to be normal. And woo, your testosterone is going to be up. up. So two, one. Two, normal. One, elevated. 17 is going to be one, seven. Aldosterone, testosterone. What's elevated, John? What's normal? So aldosterone will be te- uh, elevated. Aldosterone's elevated. Testosterone's normal. So those patients are going to have hypertension, hypokalemia, and no virilization. Your 21 hydroxylase is going to have n- normal blood pressure, normal uh, potassium, and virilization. What about 11, Wu? So for 11, you have one in the aldosterone column and one in the testosterone column. So both are elevated. And these patients will have uh, hypertension, hypokalemia, and the virilization. Right. And that's, they're going to give you those clinical scenarios. They're going to ask you what, which they're going to list those. That's going to be A, B, and C. You got to pick them. So go watch that YouTube video. Draw that out. You'll never miss another question on congenital adrenal hyperplasia on the boards. Okay. Uh, so let's move on to adrenal insufficiency. Uh, what are some causes of primary adrenal insufficiency, Wu? So the most common in Western societies is autoimmune Uh, In the developing world, the most common is tuberculosis. And additionally, you want to think about bilateral adrenal hemorrhage and adrenal metastases. Uh, Okay, John, what about, so that's primary uh, adrenal insufficiency. Again, autoimmune, most common in the United States and Western societies. Worldwide, you got to think about tuberculosis, something we often don't think about. Okay, what about secondary adrenal uh, insufficiency? So the most common uh, reason for adrenal insufficiency in the United States is actually suppression of ACTH secretion but from exogenous steroids. Right. These are your patients that are on prednisone for whatever reason, for rheumatoid arthritis, for uh, lupus, whatever, and they're coming in to have a surgery and they're adrenally suppressed. Um, what are some signs of chronic adrenal insufficiency, Will? So you get fatigue, anorexia, abdominal pain, nausea, diarrhea, and that classic skin hyperpigmentation. Yeah, and so the big thing we're concerned about with, when these patients that come in with adrenal insufficiency is we're, this is a surgery test. We're going to be operating on them. We're going to be putting them through stress. The, uh, the concern of pushing them into an adenosonian crisis. So that's in patients who have a decreased adrenal reserve, who are adrenally suppressed, and during time of stress, such as surgery or trauma. 
What are some signs that we'll see with an Adazonian crisis, John? So you'll get cardiovascular collapse. Uh, they'll be hypotensive, tachycardic, uh, and you'll get refractory shock. Yep, refractory shock. So um, what's the classic? You see a patient in the ICU. Uh, what's the classic thing that tells you that they're adrenal insufficient? Uh, so a patient who's in the ICU on multiple different pressors and you're still not having any response. Right. Hypotensive, unresponsive depressors. That's, that's class. That's classically what you're going to see. And what do you want to do with those patients? You want to send off your cortisol, your test, your, your dexamethasone or your ACTH stimulation test. What do you want to do? Yep. So the, the internal set off the, uh, your send off your, your cortisol level, but you also want to just start treating these people empirically. Right. And that's the key thing right there. You don't wait for your test. You, you, you treat them empirically. And what do you want to treat? What typically, what's a good answer to treat them with? So you want to treat them with hydrocortisone, hundred milligrams. Yeah. Yeah. So again, you send off your test. Sure. But, but the, the key, the key concept there is you don't wait for your test. You treat them, you, you treat these patients. And so we're talking about the ACTH simulation test. What is that? So for this test, you administer a synthetic ACTH and you measure cortisol levels at 0, 30, and 60 minutes. So if you see that the cortisol level is greater than 18, that's a normal test. So, John, you mentioned that you can treat with hydrocortisone, which I think what a lot of people would treat um, suspected renal insufficiency with. What's the what's the problem with that when it comes to the ACTH stimulation test? So it actually will interfere with your test and give you false results. So what's an alternative steroid that you can use that doesn't in- interfere with ACTH? And then you can use your dexamethasone and this won't interfere. Right. We're getting a little bit into the weeds. I doubt any of that's going to show up on the on the boards, but certainly Adazonian crisis and treating and all that stuff will. Okay, so we're we're moving into uh, some lesions, some adrenal lesions. So uh, something we encounter a lot and we hear a lot about and we talk a lot about is the adrenal incidentaloma. Uh, what's the definition of an incidentaloma? So this is something that is found incidentally uh, as a victim of modern imaging technology. Right. So you have a, everybody, a trauma patient, every trauma patient gets pan scanned. Uh, everybody with the belly pain gets an abdominal CT. We're seeing more and more uh, small little adrenal lesions that are very common um, that we would have never seen before. So then you're, we're stuck with what do we do with this? So how, how do you approach these patients, Wu? So first, uh, you want to start with the laboratory workup to determine if the tumor is hypersecretory in any nature. So test for cortisol levels, catecholamines, aldosterone to renin ratio, and uh, DHEA sulfate levels. Yep, this is uh, I've said it multiple times in this podcast already. But if you understand the physiology, you don't have to memorize what you send off. You just know. So you you think about what does the adrenal gland secrete. Those are the things you, you test for to see if it's a hyperfunctioning tumor. So what about if your laboratory workup is negative? How do you approach these incidentalomas? Then your management is going to depend on size and imaging characteristics. So let's start with the small lesions. So small lesions, less than four centimeters with benign imaging characteristics, namely they're smooth in appearance, they're homogenous, they're less than 10 Hounsfield units. And they have greater than 60% washout on 15-minute delay phase CT. Uh, so for these select lesions, it's okay to observe with repeat imaging in four to six months. Right. Less than, less than four centimeters, th- this is what you do. Yep. You look for those benign imaging characteristics. And specifically that less than 10 Hounsfield units and that greater than 60% washout, those are things that are going to show up. Those are things that you need to know. For those, repeat imaging, six months. 
Okay. What about lesions that are larger? Let's say larger than six centimeters. Yeah. So six centimeters is a good cutoff. Um, or you want to kind of lump into this category any functional lesions or any of those worrisome imaging characteristics. So for these, think about heterogeneous, uh, greater than 10 Hounsfield units, less than 60% washout on delayed phase. So for all these patients, they should move on to adrenalectomy. Okay. What's an important caveat though? Because you, you said, you know, anything that doesn't meet those characteristics, anything greater than six centimeters, there's one important thing that you have to think about. Yeah. The exception to the rule is the clearly benign cyst or myolipoma. Yeah. So myolipoma it has a pretty characteristic uh, um, appearance on imaging. And these can be pretty large. Uh, but they don't need resection. The same thing with adrenal cysts. Uh, uh, if it's characteristic on imaging as a myolipoma and asymptomatic, even if it's 10 centimeters, it, it does not require resection. Okay, so we covered lesions that are less than 4 centimeters. We covered lesions that are greater than 6 centimeters. What about that in between, that 4 to 6 incidental myeloma? What, what about those? So there has been a trend towards taking out smaller and smaller lesions in young and otherwise healthy individuals. But in this kind of gray area, it should really be individualized therapy based on the patient age and comorbidities. Right. And and again, these kind of gray areas are unlikely to show up in board type scenarios. But just know that there's clear recommendations for less than four. There's clear recommendations for greater than six. The four to six is kind of individualized. If it's a young, healthy patient, that's a surgically fit patient and doesn't want to undergo serial imaging, it's perfectly acceptable to do adrenalectomy. What's the, what's the role of biopsy for an incident, incidentaloma? Uh, generally, you don't want to biopsy these lesions. They have low diagnostic value and a high complication rate. So namely bleeding, initiating a hypertensive crisis if this happens to be a functional pheochromocytoma. Um, that said, you might consider it if it's a, a suspected metastatic disease and you need tissue diagnosis prior to initiating therapy, but generally you're not going to biopsy these lesions. Okay, great. So that covers our incidental lomas. And, and obviously, we'd already talked about aldosterone, the cortisol-producing tumors, anything that's functional, um, we want to resect those. Uh, so moving to the other extreme, we've talked about, let's talk about adrenocortical carcinoma. Uh, John, what do we need to know about these? ACC is a, a rare aggressive tumor, uh, typically very large at the time of presentation, greater than six centimeters, and 60% of them are hyperfunctioning. Great. Okay. So what's the treatment for adrenal cortical carcinoma? You'll, you'll give, you'll, I'll tell you, you, you'll be, to get the diagnosis on the exam and you'll be given laparoscopic adrenalectomy, open adrenalectomy, retroperitoneoscopic adrenalectomy. What's the answer? So the answer is open adrenalectomy. And that's what you should be using for all your board and absite at this time. Uh, not a retroperitoneal approach. Laparoscopic resection is still controversial. Um, but, uh, the right answer on any board exam or a, um, or an absolute test at this time is open. And why is that? Why is, why is it not retroperitoneoscopic? Why is it not laparoscopic? What's, what's the key surgical, um, principle there? So the basic is not tumor spillage. You don't want to violate the tumor capsule and create more disease. Yeah, exactly. You don't want, it's very, it's, it's covered in fat. It's very easy to violate the tumor capsule. So uh, there are people out there that are doing laparoscopic adrenalectomies, and you may have, in fact, worked with some of these people. Uh, but just know that's at specialized centers, and the answer on the board is going to be open adrenalectomy. There's also a theoretical concern uh, about aerosolization of the tumor cells with a laparoscopic technique uh, that you want to avoid. But I think that's mostly theoretical at this point. Um, how about for treatment of patients that uh, are deemed to be unresectable? What's the adjuvant therapy for adrenocortical carcinoma? So this this is where you would think of a midotain. 
Uh, it's cytotoxic uh, for all the adrenal cells. Yep, midotain, and that, that that will definitely show up on your boards. Midotain is cytotoxic to adrenal cells. It is the adjuvant therapy for unresectable uh, adrenal cortical carcinoma. All right, let's move on to uh, pheochromocytoma. This is a lesion of the adrenal medulla. So, uh, Wu, what are some uh, key principles of uh, pheochromocytoma? Yeah, so remember that the adrenal medulla is the source of the catecholamines. The subsequent catecholamine surge that is characteristic of pheochromocytoma results in paroxysmal hypertension, tachycardia, headaches, palpitations, flushing and sweating, as well as a sense of impending doom. Okay, we often hear about the rule of 10s associated with pheos. Um, John, what's the rule of 10s? So 10% are extra-adrenal. Um, they, if they're extra-adrenal, they will secrete norepinephrine and not epinephrine. Why is that? When they're extra-adrenal, you lack the enzyme PNMT. That's the phenylethanolamine N-methyltransferase, I believe, PNMT. So that's only found in the adrenal medulla. So uh, that is responsible for the conversion of norepinephrine to epinephrine. So your actual adrenal pheos are the only ones that have uh, that secrete epinephrine. Um, anything extra adrenal is going to be norepi only. Okay, so what's the rest of the rule of tens? So just running through them, uh, 10% are bilateral, 10% occur in children. Uh, 10% are familial, uh, associated with MAN, uh, 2A and 2B, von Hippel-Lindau and neurofibromatosis and 10% are malignant. Great. Those easy, uh, things that are broken off into tens. Those are all things that you want to remember. Those are all things that are potentially be asked. So let's say you have a patient that fits this clinical scenario. You're concerned for a FIO, a woo. How do you make the diagnosis? So you want to start uh, with your initial screening test of a plasma fractionated metanephrine. This is a, a very sensitive test. It's much simpler to perform than a 24-hour urine test, but just be aware that it does have a high false positive rate. Yes, and this will come up often. Like they'll ask you what's the, you know, how do you want to make the diagnosis? Um, and I think that, and I've seen several different things. You'll see it written in different review books, but I've combed through the literature. I think right now the correct answer is going to be the plasma metanephrine as your initial test. It's got high sensitivity. Um, it's not as specific, so that's why you want to follow up with the 24-hour urine collection for catecholamines and metanephrines. But the first initial screening test is going to be the plasma metanephrine test. Okay, take us from there, Wu. So once you have these tests back, you're going to move towards an abdominal CT uh, is generally your first imaging modality, and this helps you with localization. Uh, after that, you want to do an uh, iodine-labeled MIBG. Uh, what is that? What's that good for? So this is actually the best localization study. It, it's especially helpful for localizing extra adrenal tumors that may not be seen on standard cross-sectional imaging. Okay, great. Uh, so, uh, John, what's, what's some principles of treatment for pheochromocytoma? So a lot of the questions that stem from pheochromocytoma and treatment uh, actually is how you prepare the patient pharmacologically before the operation. So the first thing is if you have a patient who's hypertensive and has a pheochromocytoma, you want to treat them with an alpha blocker. So the answer will be phenoxabenzamine, which is a non-selective uh, irreversible alpha blocker. So you want to titrate this until the patient is mildly orthostatic. And then a beta blocker may be added on, uh, but only after, like I mentioned, that you have your appropriate uh, alpha blockade. Right. So those are just some very important principles. So you want a your initial treatment is going to be to control the blood pressure. These are going to be people are going to be very hypertensive. So a non-selective irreversible alpha blocker, phenoxybenzamine, that's your answer. 
they'll, sometimes they'll be asked, how do you know when you're, you're, you've appreciated, uh, reached an appropriate dose? The patient's mildly orthostatic and uh, dry, uh, I think dry nasal mucosa, like they dry up um, nasopharyngeally. Um, are going to be answers there, but usually the mildly high orthostatic. Don't ever pick a beta blocker first because you'll get unopposed alpha stimulation, um, which is a big, big, big problem. So make sure that they're adequately alpha blocked first. If you still need help controlling the beta, uh, controlling the blood pressure, it's okay to add a beta block later, but never pick that first. Uh, okay, and then so after you have appropriate pharmacologic control, what do you do? So then after you, uh, you can proceed to surgery at this time, so a laparoscopic adrenalectomy or a retroperitoneal approach is appropriate. Um, you need close intraop hemodynamic monitoring and management. And these patients perioperatively, uh, you should try to keep them hypervolemic during the operation because after the operation, they're going to lose a lot of uh, sympathetic tone. Great. Okay, so that, that's a good kind of general overview of adrenal disease for the boards. Let's move on to our rapid-fire segment. So, woo. Uh, we covered this already, but where is the only part, place in the body where epinephrine is produced? Uh, the adrenal medulla, and that's because that's the location of that enzyme, PNMT. John, what's the most common site of an extraadrenal adrenal So that's at the aortic bifurcation, the organ of Zuckerkandl. Yep, some some sources that you read say actually that the, there's a just below the diaphragm and the periaortic region that's the most common place of an extraadrenal phenochromocytoma. But at this, I think I would still answer the organ of Zucker candle on the test. I think that's for some reason that that sticks out in people's minds. Okay, woo. Um, patient has long-standing rheumatoid arthritis, admitted to the ICU with urosepsis. Despite fluid resuscitation, antibiotics, and vasopressor support, the patient remains hypotensive. What's your diagnosis? An acute adrenal crisis. And what's your management? So you're going to start with empiric steroids, uh, hydrocortisone, 100 milligrams, IV, Q8 hours. Yep. And how how do you want to manage that? Um, what's the acute insults? The sepsis is over. Mm-hmm. So you actually do a rapid wean to a home dose level over the first 48 hours uh, once the acute insult is taken care Great. of. Great. Rapid wean over 48 hours is what you want to do. Okay, John, you have a patient with um, longstanding rheumatoid arthritis who takes 20 milligrams of prednisone daily for the past six months. She develops intractable biliary colic and is being prepared for laparoscopic cholecystectomy. How do you want to manage her steroids perioperatively? So you want to continue the 20 milligrams that the patient is already taking, and then you can supplement with uh, a hydrocortisone, 50 milligrams IV, if the patient develops signs of adrenal insufficiency. In other words, you don't want to uh, stress dose them. Correct. Okay. Yeah. If you just continue their, their home dose, uh, should be fine. Supplement uh, if needed. Uh, Woo, we have a patient with a recurrent upper respiratory infection who was treated with a five-day medrol dose pack. She develops acute appendicitis and is set to undergo appendectomy. How should you manage these perioperative steroids? Uh, nothing further. You don't need a dose of stress dose steroids. And why is that? Because you're unlikely to have any HPA access suppression for steroid use of less than 20 milligrams. 20 milligrams taken for... Less than 20 milligrams of a prednisone equivalent for less than three weeks less in duration. Two, exactly. Okay. Uh, John, you have a patient who has uh, clinical and laboratory evidence of a pheochromocytoma. What imaging do you want to get? So you want to start with the you know, abdominal CT or MRI. Uh, if you can't see it on that, then you want to do your iodine labeled MIBG. Yep, your MIBG. Okay. Woo, uh, you have a patient undergoing laparoscopic adrenalectomy for a seven centimeter incidentaloma. 
uh, intraoperatively found to have adjacent lymphadenopathy and the tumor invasion into adjacent abdominal wall. What's your next step? So you convert to an open procedure. Here, your suspicion for ACC is heightened. And so you want to uh, avoid any risk of violation of that tumor capsule through that laparoscopic approach. Perfect. Okay, last one, John. What's your most common cause of hypercortisol? Uh, and uh, steroid use, exogenous administration of steroids. Yep, exactly. All right, well, that does it for Behind the Knives, review of the adrenal gland for the upside and the boards.